You're listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Hey friends, Dan Duvall. Just a quick reminder, danduvall.com is the location of the Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall podcast. Be sure to visit us there, connect, shop. And don't forget, this podcast is supported by viewers like you and podcast patrons for as little as $5 a month. Get early access to podcasts, a free course taught by me and discounts on merchandise. Also, remember Overcomer Accelerated will be launching a pilot real soon. And that's going to be in the fall. We are here to serve the survivor community. People have been through various types of trauma backgrounds with weekly group coaching, uh, support group, access to an extensive library of hundred over 100 hours of coursework, among other services. So we're really excited about what this is going to produce be sure to check it out at overcomeraccelerated.com or just link to it from dandevall.com. And by the way, continue to support bridemovement.com. If you were not listening to our most recent church service, we dropped a big bomb. Bride Ministries will be purchasing a ministry campus. And so if you haven't heard the news, you can always go to our most recent church service. Uh, it's called Heart Matters Part 4 on YouTube. Check us out at bridemovement.com and we're going to be talking about it for a while now. And so we are very excited for what the Lord is doing. Lots of things to be uh, very grateful for. And we're going to get right to the podcast. See you on the other side. Those are your announcements. Well, friends, it's a good day to give the devil a bad day. And to help me do that very thing, I have Lynn's Piper Loomis on my uh, podcast to talk to you guys about her story. Now, Lynn's actually ran for Congress. Uh, she has also been trafficked by CPS and has survived unmentionable things and overcome them with the power of Jesus Christ. She's also written a new book, and we're excited to talk about that. The book is called I Am Silent No More, and her website is lynnspiperloomis.com. But Lynn's welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you, and we've actually had the pleasure of knowing each other for a little bit and I'm really excited about a lot of the things that God has been doing and is now doing in your life but you have an incredible story and I want you to walk our audience through that testimony how did you find yourself in a situation where CPS was in essence, trafficking you, What? Wh where does that start? Yeah, definitely. So um, basically, so my I was my mama's only child and we were 
in a car accident uh, when I was 12 years old and we both actually died in the accident. She's in heaven. And I had an encounter with God. Um, and that's, you know, out that's outlaid in the book, but basically, uh, I was walking towards, um, I, I was not in heaven instantly. We were, you know, in the presence of God and we were walking that, that direction towards the gates. And, um, the presence of God stopped both my mom and I, and in spirit, we were holding hands and walking that direction. And so what happened was I, I turned around because he, he basically was communicating through me, um, that he wanted to show me, um, what my destiny held, even though I didn't understand the full depth of it, I knew it was governmental. And in that place, um, he gave me a choice and there was no shame and condemnation. There was only love. And I understood the impact in that moment of going back. And I also understood that my mom was not going to go back with me. And so this is a very abbreviated version of the encounter, but I ended up telling her goodbye, um, in spirit. And then, um, I hugged her and the moment that God was blowing his breath back into my being and my spirit went back to my body, they were cutting a hole in the side of my chest cavity um, for a collapsed lung. I suffered um, extensive injuries, internal bleeding, and I uh, would take a year to heal. But um, after that, basically everything, her wishes for me, the places where she had told those very close and near and dear to her heart of where I would, I should go if something happened to her, all of that just disappeared. So for like the first year after she died, I went through a lot of trauma. Um, I was on and off the streets, nearly joined a gang, tried to commit suicide twice. Um, and how old were you? I was 12. I just turned 12, six days before the accident. And I had a severe brain injury that would take a year to heal. I broke my neck. I broke nine ribs, my collarbone, my pelvic bone in two places, damage to liver, lungs, heart, spleen. And then I had um, massive bleeding internally and damage to my reproductive organs. And so um, it was just really, it was insane. So during that time, my stepdad, I'm, I'm sure that he was heartbroken. He was never, um, really a great father. Um, but in that place, I, I would go to a few different places and stay with people, but it just wasn't, it wasn't, um, it wasn't good. In fact, he had a girlfriend within a few weeks. I'm going somewhere with this, but, um, he had a girlfriend for within a few weeks after my mom died, he, we had had a trip planned to Hawaii. Uh, they had a, I think it was like a timeshare or something. And so that was in November and I nearly drowned in the ocean and God brought me back from, I, I got carried out a mile out and a mile and a half down the shore. And a few months after that cracked my head open. So during that time, um, I just was so lost and I didn't have the people around me. And so he decided, um, ultimately he didn't want to care for me anymore. And, um, I know that CPS was involved because the state funds that are used uh, to care for me after someone passes. And then the state funds that are received when you're placed in the system um, was received by 
um, my family. So I was taken from one state to another state. I never had a CASA worker. I never saw an ad litem. I never saw any anyone. Um, and we know that that trafficking is the exchange of something or someone for profit. And I didn't realize this till years later. So through the system, I went all of the things that all of my mom's wishes just disappeared. All of the money um, was liquidated or basically gone. I was brought into domestic servitude, um, slavery in, in um, the home that I was sent to. And I was there for three and a half years where I was raped repeatedly. And I was, um, um, you know, I mean, I was a slave. It was horrific. And so, you know, people think, well, it, it's like the movie Taken, but it's really not always that way. Trafficking happens a lot of times through the child protective services system. And so I didn't even know that that was what happened to me. I didn't understand um, that that was what they participated in. And then I understood later that those government dollars that they were getting the incentive for having me until they adopted me, which was against my will. Um, you know, all of that was liquidated. I was put into rags. I was put into my aunt's maternity clothes and bloodstained underwear while they spent the money and resources on other things. And so um, on the outside looking in, it looked like they were good people making good choices. And on the inside, it was pure hell. Wow. Now we hear, and I hear all about the broken systems, right? We, we have a lot of broken systems in the United States, the justice system being one of the biggest broken systems, the way that people are incarcerated and the patterns of incarceration around race, is massive injustice. Uh, and CPS is probably one of the worst. I want to ask you a question. How, how do these things happen? Because you have people, you have policy in place, you have protocols in place. This is how we handle this situation. And this is how we handle that situation. Do you think the systems in CPS are engineered to assure that people will be hurt and damaged and kept in abuse situations? Absolutely. Because when we were doing statistics, my husband and I've been doing a lot of research um, because I will cut the head off of this snake. We will end modern day slavery. Um, but as we were looking at this, at the situation. So every state in the union gets um, money allotted to them by the federal government. And so every child that comes through CPS, number one, if they go missing, nobody's going to miss them. And um, I think I have to pull the stats. I don't have them in front of me. I don't have them memorized, but there was like 55 children that go missing a day, um, 800,000 a year in the US. And eight, I think it was close to 8 million globally. Um, one child, one in three children goes missing in Europe every two minutes. Um, and a majority of the children that go missing in, um, I'm going to see if I can pull this up while I'm talking to you, but a majority of the children that go missing in CPS, a lot of times they're not found. Um, their bodies are not found. So where do they go? It's easier to traffic children. And we know that the, the crisis at the border, which I've spent extensive time through there, they're coming up through Catholic charities, Methodist charities, and Lutheran charities. That's why um, our former 
commander in chief um, was DNA testing at the border because a lot of these families were not family units. Um, everything was managed by this criminal enterprise. Um, I'm using code guys, so this doesn't get taken down. Um, and they're tagged by how they're going to be trafficked. They're branded, braceleted, or uh, tattooed. And even some of the workers are as well. So um, the former um, admin, uh, former commander in chief was DNA testing um, and tracking were these violent offenders, were these children, did these children belong to these individuals and finding out that they didn't. And so um, I've been working with people in different law enforcement agencies. Um, a lot of intel that I personally have, I've seen and I've also heard firsthand um, in what's going on in South Carolina across the union at the border. Um, these children are sold for organ harvesting, sex drug, human trafficking, um, but 80% of the people coming across the border are men. So um, where are all the rest of the women and children that are coming across the border that are unaccounted for? And so, um, and it's not all Hispanic people. We have over hundred nations that have crossed the, the Southern border. We're not even talking about the Northern border. So, um, and so they place them through the foster care system. An example of this would be, I'm going to give you a hypothetical situation that I have recently um, encountered. I'm not gonna give you the location or any of that, but I will just say hypothetically, there was a 13 year old female that I was told about in the foster care system, um, had a six to eight month old child and the father had abandoned her. Now we know, and this child was from another nation, Hispanic um, or Latino origin, this, this child, so part of the down payment getting across the border for women and children, um, they are raped. If women fight being raped, they're murdered. Um, children are drugged with Dramamine, the underwear, the diapers, undergarments are hung on trees called rape trees. Um, as a trophy, look at what I did. So this young person was raped. And as a result of being raped by the cartel, more than likely, this individual um, then has a child. So now we have two children essentially in the foster care system. So how do they come up through there where our taxpayer dollars fund these organizations? And they are also aiding and abetting um, criminals getting across the border. How are they doing that? They are leaving humanitarian drops at the border. One place I went to in Arizona, um, down near Aravaca, there is a way going through the desert that only mostly men and the criminals use and they get, they've got Middle Eastern terrorists through there. I've seen the footage later apprehended um, in Washington, D.C. on the terrorist watch list. So they get them through there, but they have humanitarian traps where they give them food, water, clothing to help them get through. So our government not only knows what's going on, but they become complicit because they turn the other way. Wow. And here you are, someone who survived the injustice of the system and God is exposing to you the system yes. uh, from a place of power. Now you, you actually are sitting in a much different seat than you were when you were going through it. And I want to talk about that, right? Because one of the things that I'm big about is Jesus. 
Mm-hmm. Can I tell you, uh, we have we have all kinds of <laughs> mugs at the dandeval.com website. I'm, I'm actually holding one right here, Heart for Parts, because we care about the brokenness that people endure. We have another one that, that, that says, I was not put here to be bullied by a defeated kingdom. Can I tell you something? You are the uh, manifestation of that, my friend. And and you you have with Jesus come back from trauma. I mean, injustice and and overcome. I want to talk about that. Where along the road of, of your journey, the trafficking and being sold into this basically uh, domestic slavery, did you have an encounter with Jesus? And and how did He take you out of that? Yeah. So I also just want to clarify that although I never saw a foster home. Um, that this is happening. So I just want people to know that don't overlook something that's right in front of you because sometimes it's not what it seems. But, um, you know, one of the, in, I, I talk about this in the book, but one of my encounters um, when, when my um, offender, I guess, I don't know what to call him, um, but when he was in an encounter where he was getting on top of me, I just was, I, just was in my, my spirit was really broken. And I just was like, Holy spirit help. And it was between the age of um, 13 and 16 and a half. I don't, I don't remember the, where I was at, but I was on the couch and this, the spirit of Mike came in and threw this nearly 300 person off of me, um, 300 pound person off of me. And I, I've never, I mean, it, it was just really powerful. So I knew I knew God was with me and I was where I was living. I was looking at emancipation. I was trying to, how do I get out of this system? How do I, because I I was back in that fight or flight mode. And then um, the straw that broke the camel's back for me at 16 and a half, I had just had um, another attack. And I said something that morning is like the fear of the Lord hit me. And I shot up out of my bed, um, that morning. And I just said, look, if you don't, um, say something to this individual about what's going on, even though the other person knew what was going on, um, I'm going, I'm going to say, I'm going to, I'm going to speak. And then I think it was that night or maybe the next day, I, I don't remember the time frame. But basically, those both of those individuals came down to my room in the basement, and they said, "If you ever say anything about this, um, you know, we'll we'll deny it." And then um, they continued on in threats, and I knew that my life was not safe. And so um, it was the next morning after that. I just knew that if I came back, I could not survive. I, I was done, and so I packed my mom's Bible that I'd kept with me all those years. I packed what little clothes I had, which was maternity clothes and things that were not good. I tried to take as much as I could in my little bag. I went to school that day and um, I went to my school counselor and left a note on her door. She wasn't free in the morning. And I got to my afternoon period when science class and I just lost it. I just, I, I knew I couldn't go back. And so the counselor ended up calling me over the system there's more to that, that time. But anyways, I got there, I told them everything that happened. And according to that state and their regulations, and because of the age that I was at, you're kind of considered an adult at that age, not completely, but um, 
that it, one of those individuals admitted to what had happened. One was arrested. And so basically I had to go to a temporary holding place. And so I went to, and that family member had to make arrangements that law enforcement approved it. And I had to ride in the car with that individual. And that individual was told, you can't say anything um, to her. You can't bring it up. She did anyways. But I told them um, that if, if I go back, you won't find me alive. I knew that I was not going to make it. And I said, you'll never find me. And I just knew there was something, uh, they were very uh, violent physically also in the home. It was, it was so scary. So anyway, we get to um, where we're going and I was in this place for three days. They bought me a whole new wardrobe of clothes. And if they ever see this, I'm so thankful um, because that set the tone for the rest. And then probably within two or three weeks, so I went in a few days and I stayed at my friend's house, slept on her floor. And within two or three weeks, I was out of that state in another state. So I, honestly, it was the hand of God that led me through that whole journey. And I, I didn't understand the full picture of it. And I'm still learning, obviously, until years later. Um, married to my husband now. And he's just like, one day he said to me, he's like, you, you don't have to deal with this anymore. You can just let it go. And God was speaking to me through him. And I said, oh, you're right. Like I can let this go, you know? Um, so it was really powerful, but that's, I mean, I was 16 and a half when I escaped. Wow. Now at a certain point you had an encounter with death. Mm -hmm. um, the spirit of death. And, uh, do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So that was actually within the last four years. Um, the last four years has been the most life-changing season of my entire life. Um, it is incredible. Um, but basically I broke all, all, um, covenants in my bloodline with the Masonic and Illuminati lines and witchcraft and we know how deep all that goes and within 12 hours um we had immediate release i had been asked to come on my first international trip um to meet with government leaders but also i had an encounter with um the spirit of death so in my i was sleeping in my dream by the way my husband's legs were healed after, not long after that it was crazy awesome but um I was in my dream, in my dream, I was taken into um, a funeral home and my family's spirits were with me. And I was keenly aware that my body in, at that initial stage was super hot and sweaty. And then it turned cold and I'll explain that in a minute. But in, in, the, in the encounter, my, my two girls and my husband was with me, which was really strange. I mean, I know we're a unit, but it was just really strange. And there was this um, casket, it was half open. And then there was this beautiful angelic being in it. Well, it looked beautiful. And then he popped out of the box and he started talking to everyone. And I discerned immediately that um, he was a spirit of death. And I, um, I basically just got my, my family out of there and I was there. And now leading up to this point, I had always been deathly afraid of the dark of, um, because I've seen in the spirit since before I was in, in the earth. And, um, so I've seen all of these things. So I was always afraid of the morgue, the funeral homes, dead bodies. It always just, I was terrified. 
And um, so then I saw the spirit of death. He, even though he appeared to me as this bright shining angel, I could see how insidious and ugly and revolting he was. Horrific. Horrific. And so he starts poking me. And that's when my body started. I, I, my spirit was in the encounter, but my body I could feel was cold and my room was cold and I started shaking and he started poking me and he started mocking me and just like breathing on me and just being really vile. And then my spirit went straight back to my body because he went to my body. He was coming for me to take me out. And my spirit came back to my body and I shot up out of bed. I had actually smacked my husband um, bad form. <laughs> and he was at the spirit of death was at the foot of my bed. And I said, um, you know, get behind me, Satan. I never knew you. The Lord rebukes you. And I said, if you don't bow down on your knee and recognize Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who, um, died, was buried, resurrected on the third day and sits at the right hand of the father, you have to leave now in Jesus name. And he left. Mm. And so, um, that, that time frame or that season, this last four years has been crazy. Awesome. And so that really, that changed, like my daughter had freak accidents, my youngest one, where she would like break her elbow and the x-ray showed it was broken and I'd pray for her. And then we'd go back in and they were going to do some uh, like a permanent cat, not a permanent, but put a cast on and they do an x-ray and she's completely healed. And that before was before we cut the ties with the Masonic and the Illuminati. And then after wow. um, she was healed and she doesn't, she's not in the hospital anymore with weird illnesses. So it really, things really shifted. If that makes sense. Wow. Just so good. So good. And that's why, I mean, obviously you know this, but at Bride Ministries, we are pioneering new and creative and accelerated ways to get people delivered from their bloodline stuff because of the difference it makes. And, and I'm just going to say this, you know, God is raising up a company of people that has been and will continue to that is tasked with the responsibility of destroying the investment that the kingdom of darkness has made in their bloodlines over millennia. They're all sent in this generation to break them all at the same time. It's really, really an exciting time to be alive because as these ancient agreements and covenants and, and iniquity is being shattered by the power of Jesus, by brave souls, volunteers that have taken up the assignment and the mission from God, evil is being depowered in real time. At least that's my vantage point. I know people, you know, they, they, people have different vantage points based on their belief systems, but, but I see God doing something really, really cool. Yes. And I think you do too. Oh, absolutely. Like this, I mean, we're going through a shaking, but I'm excited. I mean, it says to bring his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And so I always tell the doomsday people, wait a second, that's not biblical. Yes, we're going to go through and endure things. But the Bible that I read says that we're going um, to mirror the reflection of the father and we're going to um, be, you know, white as, I mean, we are white as snow, but he's coming back to a bride that is blemish free 
and um, mirrors his image. So that means that we're walking in identity and we are building a kingdom here that reflects the kingdom there. Come on. And so that's what we're doing. Like, that's, that's amazing. So things are going to get better. Not, we don't, Jesus isn't coming back to rescue us. He's coming back to people that understand their identity and are walking in authority. Wow. Wow. See, okay. And so on that, God, God is taking you down some interesting roads. And uh, one of those roads is politics. I mean, you ran for office. You were running for Congress. Mm-hmm. You're involved politically in your state. Can you talk to us about elections? Because, you know, I, I know a lot of people, I, I'm one of them. I was just not satisfied with 2020 elections. I felt that we were conned and ripped off. But the news media said that is baseless, that we have had the most secure election in all of U.S. history. That's what they said on CNN, MSNBC, and certainly on, uh, you know, Politico. And so I, I, uh, I don't know. I mean, where, where is your opinion on the issue? Yeah, so I love this discussion. Uh, well, we know in, in 2016, Miss Hillary Clinton um, said, oh, the election was rigged, it was stolen. <laughs> and now, and I mean, so many of them did. And they're like, our systems, our machines are not secure. And then <laughs> here we are, right? Um, so personally, I, I know that it was S-T-O-L-E-N. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if we're, we're going to put this, but it, it was. You know it, what? I'm already, I, I've given up. This is not going to YouTube. Let's just okay. go ahead and have the conversation, say, friend. All right, then I'm just going to say it like <laughs> we, it we is. Do. We, we're going straight sure. to rumble, my friend. <laughs> all right, guys. Sorry. Not sorry. But um, yeah, so, so the election was stolen. And so I see November, obviously of that year, I knew something was wrong. Um, we all knew something was wrong. And I had been in DC after the election around the 12th or the 14th. Um, and I had, that's actually the first time I met general Flynn, um, personally. Um, I think it was that year. I might've been it was 2020. Yeah. Well, anyway, so we already knew something was going on. It was, what do we do? How do we navigate through this? Because this is horrific. And then I was, um, I started trying to partner with people to figure out what's going on. What can we do? And at that point, I didn't think I was going to be running for office. And then I was in DC the end of December through January 7th. And on the 5th, I spoke at the Supreme Court. On the 6th, I was listening to President Trump's entire speech where he promoted peace, law, and order. I did not go to the Capitol. I actually went back to the hotel. And then we took us hours to get back to our Airbnb. Um, and um, there was 13 of us that stayed together that day. Anyway, um, and so we all talked about it. And we prayed together that day because we, when we got back, we didn't even know what was going on. And we got back and what the news was reporting, we're thinking that's not what happened. And so then we began documenting ourselves. And so then we came together and we prayed. And so then, and then my former opponent completely betrayed America, betrayed the American people and their voice and their vote, and then betrayed um, 
our great president at the time. And I still believe he's a legitimate president, President Trump. But um, so then I said, okay, what are we gonna do about this? So then I began communicating back and forth with different people through Signal and just trying to figure out. And um, so then I started working with Arizona representative, Mark Fincham. Um, I worked with, still working with him. He's got a great ballot, actually have the prototype here, paper ballot for over a year. And then I was connected with Mike Lindell's, um, some of his people that he has, that he's working with across the nation. And we have some in South Carolina and across the nation. And then I, I started um, reaching out to like Dr. Frank and we had Dr. Frank, well, actually one of our people that were working elections had him come down. And so we had a presentation. So then we just start going through this whole last year. And so we, we pulled data from our state. One, one data set showed that in 2020 election, over 20,000 people ages 90 to 121 voted in the presidential election. That's impossible. There's not that many people over 100 alive in the, in the world that we're aware of, right? I mean, there are tribes and nations that we may not know about, but, um, but recorded people over that age and let alone in our state. So then I began to look at that. So, so we've been working on this for over a year and my role was different than what other people are doing. So we just tried to navigate through that. So now we're in the position of making sure that they don't erase our um, records, our electronic records in each state. The deadline is September the 3rd, um, getting rid of the machines. We, we know the machines are completely rigged and I've seen, I've seen the proof, we've seen the data. The, the, the Republican party in my state asked me to bring in experts and I did. Um, they had meetings with the attorney general, with different, we've had Zoom meetings, we've had face-to-face -face meetings with Mark Fincham and with um, uh, Dr. Frank and that that's, he's a part of um, Mike Lindell's team. And then you've got, um, we've had, we've, we've exposed all of these things. And then they do just like all the other states, they turn, well, not all of the states, there's some that are really taking a stand and they turn their nose up at it and then move on. And then they just keep moving on. And so I just, I saw while I was running, cause I ran for Congress for over a year, I saw the underbelly of the political spirit and the religious spirit, but they were wrapped around each other. Whoa working together, but in the natural, it looks like they're clashing. And so I use the term, which other people have used, the uniparty is out. I mean, I firmly believe that a lot of the RNC is evil. And I mean, they always want to blame everything on the Democrats. But then if, let's just say this like it is, if the Republican Party was actually adhering to their their own creed and to the constitution as they state that they are constitutional and our christian values america would not be where we are mm -hmm. we wouldn't be because they would have stood up for those values and so they're bought and paid for and there there are some leaders that are not that i've met um that i absolutely think the world of um and i have um just been establishing some of those relationships but there are a lot of people even people that we think are good players that aren't and so these elections the way that we overturn 
and take back this country. Number one, of course, is the Holy Spirit, the move of the Spirit and surrendering to that. But number two, um, the people are the solutions. So something that I was running on, I told people, I said, even if you elect me into office, you're sending me some of the language I'm hearing is that I'm going to solve all of your problems, but that's large government minded. That's not biblical. I'm not the solutionary. I said, you're the solutions. And I believe that America's at the, at the dawn of a great reawakening, but the, the solutions to the problems we face here, so history doesn't keep repeating itself, is inside of the people, even people we don't agree with. Um, and so elections is a nonpartisan issue. I knocked on Democrat doors. I knocked on independents. I knocked on everybody's doors. They didn't like their businesses being shut down. They didn't like um, mandates. They didn't like um, their medical freedoms being stripped away. They didn't like their kids' um, schools being shut down. They don't like the indoctrination of CRT, SEL, and um, the trans agenda. They don't like that. And I got a major mouth lashing from several of them about Trump. But then when we just listened and we, we sat down and we talked about issues, instead of focusing on me versus you and party versus party, but we got to the heart of the issue, that's where we really made a difference. And so um, the way that we fix this is by the people doing um, door to door in their communities, being concerned about the people in the grocery line that maybe can't pay their bill or maybe at the coffee shop, God has given us all some sort of sphere of influence, whether it's homeschool moms or it's our, our neighborhood. And if you're on a farm and you live like 20 miles out from your neighbor, drive 20 miles and go knock on their door and see how they're doing. Because everyone is going through something right now. Um, and if we can help bridge that gap and then begin to talk about these things, well, what do you think about what's going on? How would you solve this problem? And two is better than one three is better than two, four, and it begins to grow. And then what we do is we bring those people to the Republican party meetings in each precinct and then in each county. And then we take over the party and we reform it and we bring it back to the image and the reflection of God. That's how we're going to save this country is by being the image bearers of Christ. Even if someone else doesn't believe in Christ being that image and saying you matter and your solution matters, bring, bring, you, bring your solution to the table and, and bringing them to become members. And then they become their precinct executive committee men, or they become their whatever during this, this time of reorganization inside the party. And we blow the top off. So I vowed um, to be corruption's worst nightmare. And I've told members of the GOP in my state that I will make sure in all 46 counties that we overthrow the current regime and we reform the party for the values that America was actually founded on. And we're going to make sure that we put somebody up to run against the GOP chair in the state who has lied over and over and over and has said like 250,000 names were removed off of the electronic voter rolls. You call the South Carolina Election Commission, they're corrupt as all get out, but they're honest about their corruption. Like, no, we don't delete them. We just make them inactive. They can make them active with the push of a button. So wait, 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 <laughs> at okay, least hold, they're- Hold on, wait, 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 wait. Hold on, because what you're saying, hold on, I need a minute. I need a minute. 
they just make them active and inactive with the push of a button and they admit that? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Okay, well so, now explain to our listening audience the implications of what that means. Yes, so let's just talk, let's take this back to the basics. So the solutions that we need in this country is mm-hmm. what I was talking about, paper ballots, mm-hmm. paper ballot reconciliation, paper poll books, instead of an election season, election day, and make it a federal holiday. And I think there's something else. So right now, inside of every state, there's different types of voting machines. There's Dominion, there's ESNS, and then there's a couple of others. And then you have electronic poll books. A lot of them are operated through a centralized system. So like our state's one of the most corrupt centralized systems in the union. There's three states that are the most corrupt with how everything runs from the top down. And that's Arkansas, Alabama, South Carolina. But basically instead of a paper poll book where if someone passes away, you can go in and remove them off of there so they don't vote again. Or someone moves out of state and they update inside of the DMV at another location, they're removed here, they no longer vote. They're completely obsolete, like wiped out. Well, what happens is they're made inactive. Um, So for example, if, they're supposed to delete them, but they don't, they make them inactive. So when I called and I said, Hey, um, chairman Drew McKissick of South Carolina is saying that over 250,000 names were removed from the electronic records. And they'll say, no, ma'am, we don't delete anything. They have two archive databases. One is like your old school from when you voted in the eighties, which I don't even know what that looks like. And then they have another database. And I said, okay, so you make them inactive and you move them to the archive. He said, no, we just leave them. They're still there, but they're just inactive. And I said, okay. And so then he says, so we starts going through inactive deceased, inactive moved, inactive this. And so we saw multiple duplicate ballots. We have we saw that people voted and we have open primaries also in our state. Our GOP didn't think it was important enough to close the primary. So we had Democrats voting for Republican um, candidates and incumbents. So anyways, um, that's cheating still in my book, but anyway, so for example, during this primary, we had an entire precinct and this happened throughout the state, but this one particular precinct, There was a group of individuals that vote every single election cycle, primaries, general, midterms, consistently, last several years, and they're active, right? Well, all of a sudden, that group, that selection of people in that precinct were all made inactive, okay? So then all... So when they went to go vote, they found they're like, they're they're inactive. So that poll official contacted the South Carolina election commission and said, Hey, this person's registered, but they're inactive. All they had to do was go into that electronic poll book system, push the button and make them active again. That's it. Now we also have a a regulation in our state that says that um, you have a certain time frame to register to vote. And once that deadline is done, you can't register to vote anymore. We had people showing up that had never registered to vote that registered to vote on the day of. On our applications at southscvotes.gov or scvotes.org, you can go either way, and you, you pull up the application, the PDF form of the voter application. At the bottom of the form in a little gray box, 
it says you have to have this, this, and this. But then it says, if you're age 65 years of age or older, you are a voter with a disability, a Marine merchant in their families, because we're a, a coastal state, a military member in their families, or a US citizen living outside of the country, you can register to vote. No identification is required to register and no um, proof of residency is required to register. Well, we had a family member that moved here from another state that needed to register. So I, I came across this. And so I thought, this is crazy. So then I began calling all the GOP chairs of the counties of the district that I'm, I was running in. And I said, did you know this? Because they're passing these monumental laws that made national news. No, we didn't know that. So I was able, this person was able to register to vote without proof of residency. I called and I said, you want me to send in a utility bill? Do you want me to send in? No, no, no. Well, this person no longer has a state ID either. They just have, or they have their military ID. And so um, essentially they could have used that ID to um, vote. Now, I don't, I don't know the outcome of, you know, what happened and how they, how they voted um, because that's their own choice of how they do that. But you can show up and sign an affidavit and say, I don't have an ID and I don't have this and you can vote. And we had people that were doing, I mean, we had all kinds of crazy things happening. Um, so that's just one precinct. And across our state, the other thing with the machines was um, electronic machines. They, um, they voted for one candidate and then they go down to the survey questions they answer yes on the bottom one. And then up here, that candidate flips to the incumbent who is uh, Republican in name only. And so um, if you didn't catch it, it prints and you submit it, you can't go back and change your vote because once it goes into the ballot box at the bottom, they don't know whose vote is whose. So. a glitch like but not um not a glitch not An algorithm oh my gosh so there's like all kinds of loopholes mm. there's all kinds of bad policy then there are algorithms um so you, you you're framing this up right now now if i was in charge of elections in your state i would be in an uproar and I would shut down a whole lot of things because I have sense, but you're talking to people who seem to answer to other interests. Yeah. So, so in most States, there's a secretary of state. And so they're, they have more influence in the voting. So like um, Arizona representative, Mark Fincham running for secretary of state out there and he will win. He's going to be amazing. He can change a lot. He has a lot. He'll have a lot of influence over um, the voting and able to make it, you know, better. And he's already doing that. But in our state, our South Carolina Election Commission is appointed by who? The governor. We have a Republican governor. Um, but for example, we so another part of my my district, this is how this affected me. So my name was still left on the ballot, even though I withdrew from the race three weeks early and endorsed um, another person, because this is what God told me to do. So I was obedient. 
Um, but people could technically still vote for me and those votes had to be counted. Most people knew because we sent out press releases, we were very clear, but down in Beaufort County, which is the Southern end of the district, um, there was actually candidates. Mike Covert was one of the candidates for county council. Uh, his name, he went to go vote with his wife and he's, he's looking at his ballot because he would be voting for himself, right? His name wasn't on the ballot and neither was his opponent. So this is during early voting and all these people had come in to vote and they had the wrong ballot. The candidates were not listed on there. So right then and there, that election should have been null and void for the entire state because this is this shows that there's a major malfunction, not just in there, but through our voting systems. But did they do that? No. The GOP and the South Carolina Election Commission said, well, there's only 70 people that voted that way, so we can be clear. But what they tell us is once the ballot is submitted, it's illegal for you to cast your vote again. But also when you cast your vote, it's a, you no longer know which ballot is yours, so you don't know you, you, you just, it's, you can't track it. So that was a problem. So then that happened. And then the night of the primary, there was someone who broke the seal on the ballot box and the chain of custody and took the ballots out and intentionally kept my name, people who voted for me off of the count and gave more counts to um, the incumbent who was running than the opponent, than my, the other candidate that was running that I endorsed. And so the votes weren't coming in. The, the, um, that county is what carries the weight of declaring a win or a lose in that situation. And this is the same place where the people were left off the ballots, the same county, okay? So then we go to the election hearing and we say, hey, 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 there's something going on here. The, the votes weren't even counted for Lindsay. So they do a recount. They zero, they show us they zero out the machines to zero. Um, so that person broke a, the law. It was a federal violation. There's been nothing that's happened to that person. So they do a recount. Instead of having five to 7,000 votes discrepancy in favor of the incumbent, now there's like a 1,600 still in favor of the um, incumbent and a lot of Democrat crossover because it's open primary. So we know that there was rigged elections. That right there should have shut down the elections for the entire state. And they should have said, we're doing a complete new election and there should have been an audit, but did they know? So then there was other parts of the state that had massive issues. Um, we had people, I could go on and on and on, but basically there was a hearing that was held with the GOP. The GOP's own attorney said, multiple laws were broken and they were, but the GOP and South Carolina election commission were satisfied um, with the results of the election and let it go. So we know that there was issues and now we're supposed to unify behind the ones that won the election, you know, with the Republican party, which I committed to doing, but at the same time, I'm going to say the election was rigged. And then you have the representation of our party in the state lying to everybody. So I'm going to, I'm not running for office right now. So I'm going to call it out and I'm going to say you're lying and we have proof of, I mean, we've exposed it and you should have ordered a recount. We're, we're talking about the most prized gift that God gave us in this country, sovereignty of the people, his sovereignty, his image and his likeness. And we're going to just 
brush that away. The voices in the, we're just going to move on. We don't care about what's happened in the past. And so there's a reckoning for that. And I believe that the people, that's why I came back to the people getting involved. The Republican party has their good old boy and good old girl system. But if we can pull the people from our communities and say, your voice matters, your vote matters, and you may not like politics, but you need, it's your right to live in America, but it's your duty to be involved. And so we need you. And that's where we're at in America right now. I mean, that is, oh, I, I, mean, I mean, I'm kind of sick in my stomach at the, because here's the thing. And several people have said this, and I agree. If a nation can no longer trust its elections, it's really, truly lost its freedom. Mm -hmm. And that's why so many patriots have, have really taken a stand on this mountain, um, rightly so. And I think that it, it needs to be, I mean, look, I'm not in the political sphere right now yet, uh, but- <laughs> I think it, you are, you're talking to me. I don't I, know. <laughs> and, and for those of you that are listening, this is one of the reasons why uh, Discovering Truth is is no longer a, a piece of Bride Ministries at all. We we have uh, completely separated it financially and otherwise. Um, it's a completely independent platform for this reason that uh, we need to be political and we need to speak to these issues. And um, like Lynn's Piper Loomis wrote on the cover of her book, I am silent no more, right? So we, 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 we are giving that, that conversation a voice. I, this is such an important conversation, but look, um, all right, so, so election fraud is something that you have firsthand witness of, in addition mm -hmm. to, I mean, who, who call it government-sponsored child trafficking, because really it's it's a broken system that's allowing for ongoing abuse you know they they i mean the the numbers on children coming out of foster care are just horrible i mean they, they give free college to any foster kid that survives bingo and full medical benefits and how do i know this my husband and i were going to um my husband and i were going to foster to adopt it at one point we were approved we were going to do it and then we found out we actually saw the underbelly and how the kids were being used and we couldn't participate in it um, because we weren't going to be a part of the trafficking that's another way that we knew something was going on oh my oh my that's just crazy okay so I want to talk to you a, a little bit more about uh, your 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 journey here because you 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 know you kind of left off the story at sixteen and a half. I know I'm kind of jumping around, but That's there's okay. a lot of there's a lot of I mean I I didn't know that you were going to drop all of that on the election stuff, so I was just like, well, we got to we have to have this conversation. But now now I want to come back and. And, you know, you got out at 16 and a half. You went on your own. I mean, what was your life journey from that point to like your 20s? 
So I found at the beginning of my book, I talk about how my biological father had terminated rights to me as a baby. And I knew that his relationship with my mama was very volatile. Um, but she didn't ever speak ill will. She only spoke of one thing um, that I can recall. And that was that she found another woman's shoes in her, um, in her house. But years later, I understood more of what was going on. But anyways, when I was 16 and a half, I found him on, um, you know, we had dial up internet. I used the school's internet to find him. And I, I think I collect called, I don't quote me on that, but I, I called him and I said, Hey, is this so-and-so? And did you used to have a daughter named, um, you know, my name? And, um, he's like, yes. And I said, I need help. I need to get out of this. And that was one of the strategies that God gave me. Um, now he was not, he was a full-time truck driver with his wife. So I didn't actually live with them. I actually ended up living with, um, I moved to another state, which I have kept those locations, um, different from my book, um, to protect people's privacy. Um, but I, I went there and I lived with, um, my grandparents that I didn't know my entire life. And my, both sets of my grandparents were, so they had divorced and remarried and those couples were best friends. And so I, I went back and forth between their homes and they were phenomenal faith, um, faith-based people, loved the Lord, served their countries, great people, and um, very thankful for them. And so that's how I, I ended up over there. Now, my relationship with my birth father, um, just like when you're going through your healing journey, I really wanted to be accepted and loved. And um, he had a really bad relationship with my, my mama. And I don't, I don't know, but he had a very negative opinion of her and he would talk bad about her often. And so, um, and he had a drinking problem, still does to my understanding. And um, it wreaked havoc on our relationship. And it got to a point where um, he bullied me to not testify in um, the court hearing down in the other state. Um, so I accepted the fact that that person could plea bargain. And I, I wish I wouldn't have done that. Um, it was another stifling. And that was the first sign to me that this was not a healthy relationship. But anyways, all the way through my twenties, my first marriage, and then my, my marriage now, um, it was very volatile. He would make up stories. Like he told my family that I had married a drug dealer and, um, my husband who was active duty military and my grandparents, both of my grandfathers had served, they were officers in the air force. So when they actually met my husband and they understood he was, um, he was upper enlisted, um, they, they're like, okay, she didn't marry a drug dealer. So there was a lot of those fabrications happening. Um, he accused me of, of breaking into his home when I was pregnant and on bed rest up in, uh, where we were stationed up in North Dakota. And so there's like all of these crazy things that happened. So, um, it's just, it just wasn't a good relationship. I tried to make it work over many years. So that was added in through my twenties. And so that, um, and then my, my first marriage was horrific. 
in that situation, which is a story in and of itself for another, another day. But, um, this is where God spoke to through my husband and said, you don't have to live like this. Like you can just surrender all of this. Aren't you tired of carrying this weight? And he's like, you weren't meant to carry this. And I just like broke down and had this incredible healing that took place. I, I want to say I was in my mid to late twenties. Um, I don't have a relationship with my biological father. I've forgiven him and the other people in my life. My family is my immediate family, my girls, my husband, and my church. And all of my mom's side of the family disowned me and took the side of the perpetrators. And um, they have made very evil choices. And so um, God called me out and said, you're mine. I'm your daddy. And throughout my entire life, that's how he's been. So, you know, that change, that's what I'm multiple years of just havoc. I mean, we've, I've been married almost 17 years to my amazing husband and I'm very thankful that he has, you know, come through all this, all of this. Um, it's been a lot and he's an amazing father. Um, but we, I would say like my, my mid twenties, late twenties is when, um, that, that first, that first healing, I I know there was healing throughout that time period, but that's where I really surrendered all of that baggage, I guess you would say. Now we were talking before we started this program and, um, you mentioned how God has really spoken to you through the story of Zacchaeus. Mm -hmm. Why? Oh, I love Zacchaeus. So he was like, he's my favorite. He was um, a really corrupt politician, right? (laughs) Like a tax collector, Uh one of the worst. I forgot to mention that. And so God has just given me a heart to see righteousness, Um, not evil. Like we call out the evil. We hold people, hold people's feet to the fire. But um, he did, he, he, there was something that triggered inside of him. Hey, Jesus is coming. I want to, I want to know who this Jesus guy is right then and there humility took place. Like his first nature that he probably, that he was created in the image and likeness of God came in and he dropped whatever it was he was doing. And then he, he's like this short guy, right? He's got the short guy syndrome. So he's trying to get a line of sight. And if you go through and you count how many times he tries to get a line of sight, it's kind of funny, but his name means purity. And then Jesus is righteousness. So he's, climbing the sycamore tree. Well, um, within the last four years, I was visiting in South Australia down at Field of Dreams. And Daryl said something to me about being an Amos, Amos prophet or something. I don't, I'd have to go back to my journal, but he, he said to me, Amos seven fourteen, And that's where this story got unpacked because Amos was the gatherer of sycamore fruit, I think is, is what it was. And so God's like, you need to look at the, what this process is. And I said, cause he said, this is what your part of your mandate. And I said, all right, well, go pick a piece of fruit off the tree and you eat it. And he said, no, go through and study. So I did. And I found out that if you were a gatherer of sycamore fruit, you were there from the beginning of the stage all the way to the end. And, um, 
if you took a bite of the fruit, it would be nearly impossible because there would be pus in it and there would be wasps. So gather sycamore fruit had to pierce the fruit to let the, wa the wasps leave and the pus drain out and then um, had to um, step into uh, let it ripen so it was sweet enough to eat. So literally Zacchaeus was climbing this sycamore tree and he already stepped into humility. So then he was asking, purity was asking God to pierce him. Um, this is the, the, the picture that God is showing us. And then Jesus meets him where he's at. He doesn't say, hey, you lousy politician, you filthy rag, get down here. He actually says, hey, Zacchaeus, hey, purity, come meet me, righteousness, and come down here because I'm going to dwell in your house today. And it says that Zacchaeus climbed down and received him joyfully. And all the Pharisees, Sadducees, all the people around him were mocking and jeering and like, you're going to go to this person's house? You're going to go sit with him? And, and meanwhile, Jesus, righteousness and purity are having this conversation. So Jesus called him in the true image and likeness of who he is, called him higher. And then as a result of that encounter, Zacchaeus is like, oh, crud, I made a mistake. But no shame and condemnation. He said, whoever I've taken from, I will restore back um, for, I think it's fourfold. And then he said, or four times as much. And he said, I'll give half of my own to the poor. And so it's this beautiful picture of how God restores the most corrupt, evil person in my mind. And so God's taking me on this journey of um, if we're going to reform a system, like I told somebody off the other day in a very diplomatic way, I said, we're coming for your seats. We're going to reform the entire party in the state and I'm going to make sure of it. But I didn't curse them. And I, and I spoke to them in, in truth and in righteousness, but I said, this is not okay you know, the voice and the vote. So what does that look like in your sphere of influence speaking out in righteousness? So that whole thing, that's my favorite story because that's how God sees us. And there was a man um, named Dub within the last four years. And he spoke to me, he said, you're the righteousness of God. And I thought, is that a scripture? Cause I think I've heard that before. And it was, and that broke off all of the shame and condemnation. And so when that's why I know that what's happening between the Republicans and the Democrats, we can't blame everything on the Democrats. We can't it, because there's Republicans and Democrats, a good part of them working together against the people. So what we have to do is we can see the evil, but stop going down and just pointing fingers, but instead be the solution. And that's why we going we meaning all of us as the people going into our communities, knocking on every door, you're going to have doors slammed in your face, but bringing the people together and through the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, for those of us who are believers and speaking to people, that's how people get saved. So that's why when people tell me, well, did you know that that person that has endorsed you has done this? What is your response to that? And my instant response is, well, remember when Jesus was drawing in the sand and he said, about the woman who had committed adultery and sin, those of you who have not sinned can cast the first stone. I mean, we are either walking in righteousness. So that's legislatively how we can move and navigate through this time and save this country is walking in that, in that, in that place. So 
here's the problem. I I could tell you have a whole lot more to say about reforming the system. <laughs> We're Older issues. Hold mm -hmm. on. Solutions to stop child trafficking. Mm -hmm. um, sorting out a response to the swamp. Um, I even wanted to have a conversation about implications because of the end of Roe versus Wade. Oh, and Q, because that's a whole other issue. And and yet- We'll have to talk the... about that off air first before we go into <laughs> that on air. <laughs> Here, here's the thing. We're gonna have to do this on another day lens. Okay. We're gonna have to do this okay. on listeners. You're gonna have to come back for that part later. For now, check out lenspiperlumis.com. And you know, at, at her website, and you can see it there if you're watching this on video, uh, you can get a copy of I Am Silent No More. And uh, you can also check out some of the stuff that she's done as uh, as she was running for office. But you know, Linz, uh, I'm very appreciative of you taking the time to have this chat with me today. And um, friends, until next time, God bless and Godspeed. You've been listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Visit me at dandevall.com where you'll discover merch, books, and the opportunity to engage in our private social network. Join the tribe by subscribing to our email list and supporting this podcast. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.